Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Adam Schoff, thanks very much for coming on Talk Your Book. Really appreciate your time. I thought we might start with you telling us just a little bit about ACT Capital Partners and, and what it is that you guys specialise in. Yeah, sure. Well, great to be here I'm under unusual circumstances. But look, ACT Capital Partners, we're a venture capital firm. Uh, we have been uh, in operation only for 12 months. And our focus is on the global media sector where we invest in uh, startup early stage businesses across a variety of, of media verticals. Um, we're pretty fortunate we've got a, an advisory team uh, based around the world in the US, Europe and, uh, and Asia. Um, and they're all media executives in, in senior roles across studios and you know, some of the other leading media companies. And we met for the first time a few weeks ago and it was one of those meetings uh, I could have stayed and, and chewed your ear for another hour and a half. Um, because the media space is changing so rapidly and particularly in the space of esports and things like that, there's not a lot of people that uh, perhaps the finance market would consider investment grade in, in those spaces and it, it, it seems you guys are filling that void. So I thought esports might be an interesting place for us to start. What are you seeing in, in that landscape and, and what does the future for esports look like to you? Yeah, sure. Look, it's, it's interesting when we speak to people in Australia about media, they often say, look, that's a really niche sector. And, I turned them and pretty much say, look, it's a $2.5 trillion industry. So um, to us, it isn't, it isn't niche. Um, clearly in Australia, though, most people's access to media has been through very traditional media firms. So, you know, right now, um, the sevens of this world and, and others, I'm not sure people would be feeling comfortable investing in them. Um, but the opportunities overseas are significant. And a lot of the headline stuff is around verticals like esports. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, We've done a deep dive. We have a, a couple of advisors, one Dan Nord, who's uh, head of product and gaming at Amazon, uh, based over in LA, so clearly heavily involved in the gaming um, space. Um, and then Riyad um, Chikihad, who is based, I always get his pronunciation incorrect, but uh, based up in Sydney, who um, manages probably the largest um, esports gaming um, platform for news content. So we've got a, a real interest in the sector. Uh, and what we've been fascinated about is, um, as with most nascent industries, they often start off as being quite irrational in terms of the money flows. People get really excited. There's a lot of, there's a lot of audience and there's, there's no question, the, the audience and the eyeballs um, for esports are increasing exponentially. Um, and wherever that happens, clearly, you are going to get increases in value. Um, what we've found, though, is that most of the inflows of capital have gone to the teams in the early stages. And, you know, we've, we've been fortunate that we've been able to do DD and look really closely at a number of the, the large esports teams, many of whom are, are now valued at, you know, at an excess of 200 million US, up to 300 million US dollars. And yet they are, they are pretty much trading on a 13 to 15 times multiple of revenue. Um, which I find pretty excessive. If you look at, you know, an Amazon, which is trading at three and a half times, a Facebook, which might be, you know, doing it six and a half times, even a Manchester United, obviously a, a physical sports team, but one of the biggest sports brands in the world, that's, that's trading at about three and a half times uh, multiple of, of revenue. So that immediately concerns us. Um, 
But then when you actually break down the numbers even further in the teams area, what you find is of those revenues that are going to the teams, about 80% of them go to the players. Mm. Um, now, that's interesting. You'd, you'd know through your AFL days, I think the AFL runs somewhere between, I don't know, 24 and 28% of revenues going to players. Um, the NFL and the NBA are on the high side. They're around 50%, 55%. Uh, when you start to you know, share 80 to 85% of your revenues with the players, um, that's a really difficult model to become sustainable over time. So um, we're, we're really bullish and strong on, on esports. Um, we, and that's because of the number, you know, just the, the sheer numbers and the volume and the inflow of revenues from advertisers as it becomes more mainstream. Um, we actually believe that teams will eventually, there will be brands and franchises that, that build good, enduring value. But I think as with, you know, I was up in Singapore during the dot-com boom, um, and interestingly there, there was nothing wrong with the internet and e-commerce, you know, pretty, pretty significant sectors. And yet all of the initial inflows of, of capital went to, you know, I suppose the path of least resistance, companies that made websites and sold ads online. And very quickly, people recognised that there really was no competitive advantage to that. There was no way of sort of ring fencing that and building sustainable value. And so over time, that value dissipated, but the real value went into the infrastructure and some of those businesses that were able to build sustainable um, value. Um, in the businesses. So, you know, eSports very bullish, but we, we do believe that there is a lot more value in the short term around the publishers of the games, um, around some of the infrastructure that will support, so the platforms that allow people to compete, um, the analytics, and you know, the sort of data analytics firms that are out there, very much the same businesses that have value within a physical sports environment, um, we think will tend to to build sustainable valuable value within esports. So Twitch was the one that stands out that that does look like it's a brilliant business and it was a looks like it was a great acquisition by Amazon for about a billion bucks in 2014. Correct. You want to talk through what Twitch is for people that may not be as familiar with it, what some of the numbers are around uh, time a lot of people spend watching it and um, you know, the advertising opportunities that Twitch presents to businesses? Yeah, so look, it's funny when you, you know, over the last few years, when you speak to most people in the investment community anyway, very few people are even aware of Twitch. Um, it's basically a platform that allows fans to, to go online and follow their, uh, follow the, the activities of gamers online. Um, so they're actually playing video games, aren't they? They are play, playing video games, live stream. Um, you're able to to comment on the games and build a community. Um, interestingly, you don't subscribe to it, but what you do is you donate money to to the gamers. And over time, Twitch has obviously developed, and the platforms become more sophisticated. It's now doing, you know, it's now looking at live sports and a range of other activities on the platform. But when when Amazon acquired Twitch most people were surprised with the amount that they paid for it um, and really didn't see the opportunity. Um, it's now you know, valued at several billion dollars. Um, what's really interesting is that the COVID-19 um, situation has, has really accelerated the growth of Twitch. So I think traffic numbers, you, you sort of see them each week, but it's gone up something like 75% during the period, you know, the period of March. Um, 
And in actual fact, what we're finding with COVID right across the media sector is that typically when you have these you know, natural disasters or you have some other disaster, it tends to accelerate patterns and the way in which economies are developing and marketplaces are developing. And it puts stress on, on the incumbent, um, incumbent sort of marketplace and accelerates the change that is likely to occur. We're seeing that absolutely now uh, within esports and the fact that what all of a sudden what we've had is all physical sports are stopped around the world. Um, what that's led to is that NASCAR, the NBA, the NFL are all building out virtual esports to try to give their fans something to follow through the season, to give their sponsors something to attach to and connect to. All of a sudden, esports, which was seen as quite fringe by, by most of us, you know, most of us grew up and we watched physical sports. Mm. The idea of watching someone else game was just, you know, it still, feels strange. it still feels strange as a non-gamer to think of. I can understand the interest in playing the video game. As a yep. non-gamer, it's hard to get your head around finding a lot of entertainment in watching someone else play a video game. But if you ask the kids, they'll look at us as crazy and say, well, you sit there and watch other people kick a football around. Like, what is, what is the difference between sitting on the couch and watching someone kick a football around or sitting on the couch and watching world-class athletes, as they refer to them, um, playing Call of Duty or you know, Counter-Strike or Fortnite or League of Legends. Um, and whilst sport has always been so visible, physical sport, because that's, you know, that is what we've grown up with, all of traditional media is consumed by, by esports. Um, Twitch and these other platforms are quite silent because it's a very one-on-one -on -one interaction. You're not seeing it on TV. The kids are sitting in their rooms and they're watching it. Although when I say kids, the average gamer in Australia is a 34-year-old know, male. So um, it is a much larger um, industry than anyone would give it credit to. And it is very specialised esports. Before I started doing a little bit of research on it, I sort of had this assumption that there would be a professional player and they'd be able to play multiple games and would swing between different tournaments. But they do specialise in just one particular game. And like the pros never switch over to it a different game, do they? It's just the same game, eight or nine hours a day, over and over. Absolutely. And look, I, I think there's a couple of crossover stars. Uh, you know, Ninja's one who comes to mind, who I believe has, has done some crossover stuff. But probably much like, you know, you rarely see an AFL player crossing over into, into another code because it's, you know, it really is at the, at the elite level. Um, it's just a, a matter of how much time you spend practising and, you know, all of the things that go with being an elite athlete. Believe it or not, these, these guys have high performance outfits. You know, the, the athletes are taken through the same training regimes. It really is, has been professionalised over time and professionalised very rapidly. And we'll move on to some other media in a second. But before we leave esports, there's usually when computers infiltrate a, a different industry, it's a case of uh, humans and, and IT working together. And then if the IT and automation is better, which it invariably is after a period of time, then the process moves towards automation. Could you ever see a, a period where esports and physical sport coexist uh, in almost a, you know, the, the, the same game for a period of time, perhaps before eventually more people have more interest in, uh, in the pure esport format? Look, it's, it's really interesting. We're, we're actually doing, and we're a significant way through due diligence on a, on a concept which is exactly that. Um, 
I've spoken to a number of the sports you know, over the last few years and, and all of them have been aware of, of eSports and how they're, going to, um, how they're going to meet that challenge. What's interesting is that if you look at the NBA experience and the NFL and, and even here uh, with the AFL teams, uh, a lot of them have gone out and set up their own eSports teams. So they've physically gone and done that. Um, I, I haven't been a believer that that's a great way to, um, to face the eSports challenge um, head on. For the, for the NBA teams, it makes a lot of sense um, because they already have facilities. So they, you know, they can use those facilities to hold eSports events. Um, and you know, so it, it's incremental revenue for them. Um, what you'll often find is that an eSports fan, a true eSports fan, doesn't necessarily follow physical sports. But what we've looked at is there's um, a format which is literally taking a physical sport and creating a format, much like you would, you've done with cricket with Big Bash and you've had other um, short-form formats, the, the AFL with AFLX. Um, but then looking at some of the, the inherent benefits that gamers find with gaming, and that is the fact that they can control the game, they can be involved in the game, they can play it. So all, it's all the interactivity and the hands-on. There's, there's a number of behaviours that really drive people towards esports. And so I do think that there are some of these hybrid models um, where you know, physical sports and esports may, may well combine and, and build new leagues or new formats. And to your point about automation, what's really interesting with the one that, uh, that we're looking at is that they're also in discussions with IBM Watson, which is obviously IBM's AI engine. And the idea there would be that although some of the teams would be controlled by the fans, so all of the decisions and you know, the, the way in which the plays that were going to be made, the selections, all of that would be done by the fans. Some of the other teams would be completely powered by AI. Um, and so it would be man versus machine. So, you know, whether that's a gimmick or not, I'm not sure, but um, I certainly think that there will be um, physical sports being able to take some of the best components of gaming and why that engages fans um, because is going to become more important. So sport, physical sport is often very passive. You're a fan and you're watching the game. Uh, with eSports, obviously, you can actually become involved in the game and the conversation is in real time happening on the screen. Um, and I think taking some of those ele elements and combining them with sport will become really valuable in the future. And potentially reduce the risks that real sports have when the game gets uh, one-sided, people switch off in droves, I guess, keep looking away to maintain that engagement throughout the game, something that different sports codes around the country are always looking at. Absolutely. Because of... COVID, we know that sports across the planet are in, are in real trouble. You know, they, they don't have leagues and that's creating huge holes for them. That is on top of the fact that pay TV, which has typically been where the revenue for the media rights has come from in America and even here in Australia to a large extent. Um, pay TV is, is dying. Um, they are going to really struggle to be able to to continue to um, provide the, the sorts of sports rights they have in the past. You know, I think in the US, the audience number, total watch time for pay TV over the last 10 years has dropped 30%. But in that key demographic of sort of 18 to, to 40, it's dropped nearly 60%. And yet, amazingly, actual advertising on pay TV has increased by about $10 billion. Now, 
what's interesting, if you look back to 2008, when we had the GFC, and you look at print, at that time, print was you know, one of the biggest sources for advertising. And it was the GFC that exacerbated that. And print is the only, you know, the only platform that really has never recovered um, in terms of the amount of spend. And I suspect if you look at pay TV and some of the other platforms that are now being, um, you know, having real issues against, you know, the new OTT over the top services like Netflix and, you know, other subscription video on demand platforms. Um, I think it will be interesting to see what happens with the advertising spend on traditional free-to-air TV and, and cable and the effect that that will have on sports rights moving forward. Um, and if there is that knock-on that I suspect there will be, then sports are going to have to look at new incremental revenues and how they grow the game beyond traditional sports rights. And that's where you know, having these engagement pieces in terms of how the fans can engage and interact is going to become more important and more valuable. Do you think a company like Channel 7 gets through to the end of this TV rights deal in its current format? Look, I, I think the media landscape next year, clearly the AFL you know, and NRL and all sports in Australia have taken a huge hit. And I think they've done a remarkable job being able to preserve you know, the teams and with the AFL reaching out for the loans. I think the knock, and everyone assumes that, okay, once the money turns back on and the season turns back on, off we go. Um, I suspect that that's not the case. So, you know, Channel 7, I think its market cap's probably around 100 million. It's carrying, you know, 500, $540 million worth of debt. Um, audiences are already in decline and advertising revenue, I think they're saying, could be down 40%. Um, for you know, through this COVID period, that's going to have dramatic effects on Channel Seven um, and all of the other platforms. You, you have a look at Foxtel; mm. uh, they were already battling to keep subscribers. Their new KO service, which was really a, an attempt to come up with a, an SVOD platform for sports, you know, there's estimates that subscriptions could be down seventy percent through this period. I think it's going to be a drastically different media landscape that sports will be dealing with with regards to rights next year and with channel seven i think that you know given their balance sheet um and given just how difficult the circumstances are now for for free to wear i'm not sure if i was, uh, if i said i was a betting man with uh, fox seven seven I, I think they may struggle to get through and there's a belief in afl circles certainly that a company like amazon maybe even a Facebook will be a chance to come in and be the white knight for the next TV rights deal. Yep. Do you think that's something that one of those companies would, would be interested in? And if they did, uh, do you think it'd be a price commensurate to what's been paid for in the past? Uh, I, I think that they definitely are um, likely partners. They're already working with sports in the US and you know, trialling a range of different structures. Um, Obviously, with the, within the Australian market, we've got anti-siphoning, which means that it's, it's always a, a bit difficult. None of them can get it exclusively. Um, not that I think that they're really looking for that. Um, I, I would think that the next media rights, all sports are going to have to get very creative. You know, if you look at the EPL before this happened, they were looking at developing their own, effectively, OTT or SVOD platform so that fans around the world could subscribe, much like you do with a Netflix, to get exclusive access. That works for the EPL because they've got fans across the planet. And so 
you know, you can you can vary your subscription model um, in different jurisdictions, and you may well be able to come close at least to replacing some of that revenue, particularly if you if you then also have you know secondary sales on other digital platforms, etc. Um, in Australia, I you know. Clearly, with the AFL anyway, it is an Australian Indigenous game and the, the global audience is just not there. Um, so I think the AFL will need to get creative. I, I think the AFL has shown an ability to do that in the past. They've been incredibly successful at sort of going on the ride with, these, with the media rights. Um, I, I think that overall, all sports are going to be hit. The next, you know, audiences across all sports globally have been dropping for sport. Um, amazingly, at the same time, the rights have been increasing and that's been, been because of the competitive tensions. People have needed eyeballs and live sport is one way to, to sort of retain those eyeballs. Um, but I, so I, I think that the next rights deal is gonna be really tough. And I suspect though, that the likes of Facebook um, or, or YouTube or Twitch or Amazon, um, those discussions will be really lively ones, and I suspect that there will be an opportunity to, to play out across those platforms. Um, if the team at the AFL are able to increase the rights on the last deal, um, I think they will have done an absolutely extraordinary job. And you've, uh, you've taken a, a position in a, a podcast-related business. Yeah. You've seen exponential growth in, in podcasts in the last couple of years. How are you playing that thematic? Yeah, look, podcasting is really interesting. It's, it's a relatively nascent industry as well. It's you know, only about you know, just over a billion dollars worth of revenue into podcasting. Um, but the growth is phenomenal. And by growth, I mean the number of people listening to podcasts. Um, so, you know, within the, the US now, there's, they say there's about 150 million people who, who listen to podcasts and the number of people podcasting. So whereas previously, if you'd wanted, you'd be using radio and clearly radio like TV had limited channels, you had personalities, we can set up our own podcast tomorrow and, and off we go. I'm living evidence of that. Absolutely, absolutely, here we are. And, and look, I, I think that's great, but 85% of podcasters don't actually make any money. So they, they don't have access to any revenue or advertising. And the reason for that is the fragmentation in the industry. There's no sort of set platform that brings advertisers and podcasters together and the analytics to support it. So um, as with most new technologies and platforms, it takes some time and the advertising industry um, sticks firm to what it's done in the past. So right now, the biggest spend on advertising on any platform is still TV. Um, well, if we take out sort of internet, um, obviously. So it's internet and then TV. TV just cannot or should not demand the same spend as it previously did. And yet it's, it, the spend on TV is held up. So with us, we see that podcasting, we believe those numbers will continue to grow. Interestingly with podcasting, last week in the US, it was off about 8%, but um, again, COVID related, a lot of people schedule their podcasts when they're in the car or they're traveling around. Um, and so I think that that's been the, the main reason. If you look at it year on year and the growth, it really has been phenomenal. So our view is that um, we see podcasting as being a, you know, a significant opportunity 
we think that as soon as it, the, the right infrastructure that supports the industry to make it easier for advertisers and for podcasters to, um, to be matched, for advertisers to be able to get the right analytics so that they understand who they're talking to and sort of the return on investment for their spend is going to become really important. Um, and so we've, we've actually invested in a, um, in a marketplace for, for advertisers um, and podcasters. And interestingly, it was the founders of, of Podcorn is the name of the company we've invested in, but um, they set up an almost identical model when video became um, so prevalent. So if you think about all of the YouTube channels that were out there, in the early days, it was very similar. Um, the only way you sold, had ads sold against your platform was via Google serving those ads up or YouTube serving them up. So um, the founders of Podcorn set up another company, Famebit, which effectively mimicked what they're doing in podcasting. And they were able to, to sell that platform to, uh, to Google uh, eventually, um, you know, for a, a very nice profit. Um, what we find with pod, podcasting, though, is unlike video, which really had one destination in the early days, which was YouTube. So you had a lot of channels, but it was all played off one platform. With podcasting, you, you've got a lot more fragmentation. Um, so, you know, we think, we think the sector will continue to grow. We think the engagement of the audience with podcasting is extremely high. We know that, um, that advertising is far more effective on podcasts, and that's because of the, the very personal relationship between the podcaster and the, um, and the, the person who's consuming that content. Um, and as with most nascent industries, we, we, we think that there will need to be a lot of growth, you know, growth and structure built around that industry. Um, and so, you know, we're, again, we're quite bullish on the sector. How are the, the growth in podcasting impacting commercial radio? It's, it's really interesting. Radio has been phenomenally successful at staying relevant. Um, and you know, it, I think I might have mentioned to you when we spoke the other day. I think I was hearing numbers last week in uh, in the UK. Radio is through the roof again with COVID uh, nineteen. Now, a lot of that growth is because people and and it is an older audience that listen to to um, to radio. It's a younger audience that goes to podcasting. Um, so I suspect that radio will have to continue to adapt to to remain relevant. Um, but for the same reason that podcasting is successful with advertisers because of the engagement levels, radio has a similar impact. You know, radio advertising is quite effective. Um, so radio, again, when you had the GFC, there was a, there was a drop off um, in radio advertising spend, but that has actually maintained itself quite, you know, it's been quite stable. And I'm talking predominantly in the US here, um, which is where I've got a bit more knowledge of it. Um, but I think that there is no doubt that, that podcasting is going to eat into um, the success of radio. But I, you know, I would be more bullish on radio than I would be on traditional TV, for instance. Um, I think that there, it is still a behaviour. Um, and to me, this, this COVID experiment is really interesting. As I said before, it's, a, it's like a global pilot where everyone is being, you know, it's changing behaviours because we are all being forced into confinement that we're not having to deal with previously. Some of those behaviours are going to become permanent behaviour changes and others will change slightly. Um, I suspect with radio, um, you will see that when people get back into cars and they continue to, you know, to continue with those behaviours that they have been used to, that radio will stay stable for some time.
And I know you look at a lot of different opportunities, particularly coming out of the States. I want to ask you to name the, the companies in particular. What types of opportunities are you seeing that are grabbing your interest at the minute, looking into the future? Yeah, really good point. We, we do see, we see a lot of opportunities. We're really fortunate because of our, we've got advisors based in the US and, um, and also in other parts of the world. Right now, it's, it's so disparate because we've tried to put together an advisory team that looks across sort of commercialization of IP, it looks across broadcast, it looks across um, gaming and esports and technology. Um, you know, we'll have, last night I was speaking to a group that's into content making out of Israel, uh, whereas we're also in, you know, going through due diligence on this fan controlled football league, which is, um, sort of a, a hybrid physical sports, esports type um, operation. Um, right now, we, we're known as ACT Capital, and, and ACT stands for Audience Content and Technology. So for us, media is, is pretty straightforward. It's always been about the story and the storytellers, that's the, the content, and the, that content being connected with an audience. And obviously, techno, technology is the enabler. Um, the reason for the major disruption we've seen is that is really the digital technology that has enabled the audience and the storytellers to to go directly to each other so they don't have to pass through sort of that old infrastructure of a broadcast partner or 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 other platform so for us we're constantly looking for opportunities which are around audience and audience engagement um, or around the creation of content using new technologies, whether it be virtual reality or augmented reality, um, using other platforms to create content that is going to engage with a, um, with a particular audience. And we love the fact that you can take what would previously have been considered to be really niche, and it would be niche in a tradition. So um, one of the companies, and we're not investing in, but I've, I've loved the model, is a company, Crunchyroll. Basically, it's for Japanese anime. Um, so if you're a Japanese anime fan, you can subscribe to Crunchyroll. And Crunchyroll is able to acquire really cheap Japanese anime because if it's not for Japan in particular, you can acquire the content relatively cheaply. And yet you've got a, a huge global audience that is prepared to pay for that content and pay $8 a month um, to subscribe to get access to Japanese anime. That wouldn't work. If you were trying to, if you were a fan of Japanese anime in a traditional market, you're not going to find it on TV because the number of Japanese anime fans in Australia just isn't going to support it being played out on, um, on a TV channel. And yet when you combine or aggregate those niche audiences across every country on the planet, you end up with a really significant business. Um, and Crunchyroll's done an amazing job of doing that. And, and so we're looking at those, at, at businesses that fundamentally understand their audience they recognise where there is there are gaps um, in the marketplace, um, and they are able to acquire and monetize the audience that they're targeting. Well, from Japanese anime to TV rights deal, I reckon we've covered a, a wide spectrum of topics there. But I really appreciate your time. It's been brilliant as always. And just tell us where we can find out more about Act Capital Partners if people want to. That's a very good point. We're, look, we're, we are a small fund. We're based in Melbourne. Um, the, the best way would be to reach out to me on, on LinkedIn, I suspect. Uh, we've got a, a small group of family officers and, um, and other investors that, that back us. Um, so we, we're not heavily into the promotion um, of, the, of the fund at, at this stage. Um, but be delighted for someone to reach out to me on LinkedIn if they wanted to have a chat. 
Beautiful. Really appreciate the time, mate. Thanks, Chris. Great to speak. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.